You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. So glad that you guys have chosen to gather with us this morning. I'd love to meet you if you're new this morning or if you're or if we're not on a first name basis yet. If you grab one of these cards on the table to my right or your left and fill that out, that'll come to my attention. Uh, give me a way to get in touch with you that we might follow up this week and I can help answer any questions that you've got. I'm going to do the best that I can this morning to catch you up. You've come at an opportune time and that we're just in week three of our new sermon series through the book of Hosea that is customary for us here at Mercy's Door to go left to right through full books of the Bible. And so we're just in chapter three now of Hosea. Now you guys will remember if you've been with Mercy's Door that we've kind of been introduced to two different things. In chapter one, we saw the Lord God uh, command Hosea to do something fairly interesting, something that was unique among uh, the, the Old Testament prophets of Israel, where he asks Hosea to go and embody or incarnate the message that he has, a portion of his message that he has for the nation of Israel. We talked a little bit about the state of affairs in 8th century BC Israel and the state of their rebellion, the rampant idolatry, idol worship happening in 8th century uh, BC in the northern kingdom under the reign of Jeroboam II. And this is kind of the backdrop of the prophecies that are being spoken in the book of Hosea. But chapter 1 opens not with a message for the people of Hosea for, for, or for the people of Israel for Hosea to go speak, but a command on Hosea's life to go and, and take some actions that are going to produce a theater for the people of Israel to see the content or the heart of God in the message that he had. And so you'll remember that in chapter 1, what he says to Hosea is, I want you to go and take for yourself a wife who is going to be an adulterer, who is going to be unfaithful to you. And with her, I want you to produce these three children. And I want you to name these three children uh, the, uh, Jezreel, which means scattered people, no mercy, and not my people. Scattered people, no mercy, and not my people. And so Hosea does. He goes and he takes Gomer, his wife, and she's unfaithful to him. And he knows this on the front end that he's going to marry this woman who is going to violate their marriage covenant. And he has three children by her with these really wretched names, these, these fearful names that, that give us a sense for where the, the track of events is going in this period in Israel's history. And then in chapter 2, we move off of the details of Hosea's life, and we start to see the prophecy start to flow from his lips. And God starts to make some commitments through the mouth of Hosea. On, in the first half, we, had, we said that he was really uh, speaking the judgments that were coming for Israel on account of their rampant sin and idol worship, the, the different ways that his judgment was going to, and the consequences that were going to rain down on them. But then in the second half of that chapter, we see some promises of future restoration that are coming for the nation of Israel. And so it's, it's kind of this two-part prophecy that begins to be spoken in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, we are brought back into the theater of Hosea's marriage, into the theater of Hosea's life, this embodiment of the prophecies uh, that God wants Hosea to, to act out with his life. So hopefully that catches you up just a little bit. Again, we are only in chapter 3, so you could certainly go back, mercysdoor.org. Uh, click on resources, current sermon series, and you can listen to all the sermon audio for the last two if you want to get caught up. 
But here, kind of continuing the narrative for Hosea, this is what we see. Chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord God said to me, Go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. And so here to open up this chapter, what we see is God speaks to Hosea again, not go and speak, but go and do. I want you to go again, just like our God all throughout the Old Testament was a God, a father, a husband to his people Israel who went again and again and again despite their unfaithfulness to bring them back unto himself. The Lord calls Hosea to go and do the same, to go again to love this woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. See, when he called Hosea in chapter 1, he said, I want you to go and marry a woman who is going to be an unfaithful wife. At this point, what he said would be has come true. His wife has gone and pursued another lover. And I remember last week I talked to you about how this theater is to play out, that Gomer, the unfaithful wife, I want you in your mind to see as a portrait of the nation of Israel. And Hosea is a portrait of the Christ. He's a portrait of God's attitude toward and his actions toward his bride, towards the nation of Israel. And I want to clarify for you guys this morning as we look into this pursuit that it, we get start to see some clarity that we're not just talking about ethnic Israel, that we're no longer just talking about a nation or an ethnic group, the Hebrew people, but that we're talking about God's attitude toward true Israel, which is a theme that I will hit on a little bit this morning, that there's this all-encompassing love that is starting to be on display through the life of Hosea. And we saw that come into uh, view in chapter Two, when we talked about God speaking over this child who he had named, not my people, he said, on that day I will say, you are my people, and he will say, you are my God, and that we will know the Lord. We'll come back to it. And so Hosea has to go. He's got to go again. He has to love this woman, Gomer, who is loved by another man and who is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel though they turn to their other god, to the pagan gods, and they love the cakes of raisins. As a recap, you'll remember that under Jeroboam the first, that the priesthood was kicked out of the northern kingdom of Israel. They scattered to Judah and to Jerusalem. So there is a priestless nation in the northern kingdom, and all of the offerings were being made to pagan gods, to household gods. There was just rampant idol worship. And under Jeroboam the second, we, we read in, in Second Kings that he continued to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and that he did not turn from the sins of the kings who came before him. And so this is the judgment of God over this, that, the, that there's a woman, that the people of God, who have been loving another man, another God, this adulteress, but the Lord loves them. Verse 1, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, present tense, though they turn to other gods and love their cakes of raisins. You remember in chapter 2, we talked about how this was at the heart of the spiritual adultery in Israel, that they came to love all the, thing, the gifts that flowed from God and started to falsely attribute the things that flowed from God as coming from these other places. And they really started to worship the works of their own hands and to credit these pagan gods, which they had fashioned with their own hands. And he says, they love their cakes of raisins, but I love them, but I love them. 
So go and love her again, just as I love the children of Israel. Verse 2, and so Hosea responding to these words from God, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and an omer and a lethic of barley. And so now we see that in order for Hosea to go and pursue this woman who is his wife, this adulterous wife who has run after other lovers, that she's in some scenario where in order to pursue her, in order to bring her back, he's got to pay. And he's got to pay a lot. He's got to pay 15 shekels of silver and an omer and a lethic of barley. We'll get to that in a second. But why should he have to pay whatsoever for what already belongs to him? We're talking about a pursuit of his own wife. What we see is that in some way, Gomer has gone out and she has pursued these other lovers. And in some way, through her, in her prostitution, she's become destitute to the point of being made a slave, to the point of being made property at somebody's hands. Either a lover has sold her into slavery, either a lover has taken her as his slave. In some way, she has ended up the property of another man. And in order for Hosea to go and pursue her, he needs to pay for what is already rightfully his. In church, isn't this the nature of the redemption of God? We know from Colossians 1 that all things were made through, for, and by Jesus Christ, and yet when he comes, he comes and he pays a costly redemption price to take onto himself that which was already rightfully his. And so in this way, Hosea, whose name means one who saves, just like the name Jesus means one who saves, is a type of Christ. He is embodying, he's incarnating the love of God who goes and redeems and pays for at great cost to himself that which was already rightfully his. There is a double portion. Now, the price for purchasing uh, a slave, and, and you'll see this in Exodus 32. You'll see, or, yeah, in Exodus 32, we read that if, a, if an ox goes and gores a slave in the, na- in the, in the Old Testament um, nation of Israel, that the redemption price that had to be paid to the person whose slave was, was killed by this ox was 30 shekels of silver. And that, that quantity given for redeeming a slave Uh, really carried forward for a a long time. We see it show up again and again in different passages of Scripture, even all the way up to the New Testament where we see those 30 shekels of silver show up again when Judas pays them as the price for the death of Jesus. So 30 shekels of silver is an established quantity that you use to purchase a slave or to purchase the, or to pay for the death of one who belonged to another. And here what we see is that for Gomer, what Hosea pays is 15 shekels of silver and then an omer and a lethic of barley. Now, an omer, a lethic is half of an omer, and an omer is roughly 220 liters of barley. So you're talking about 330 to 350 liters of barley. I, I, I don't know if you can like see that in your mind. I can't. It's a lot is the point. It's a lot of barley. I want you to imagine hauling 330 liters of barley along with your 15 shekels of silver to pay for your own wife. 
Now, what we know about barley in ancient Israel was that it was considered an inferior grain to wheat, an inferior grain that was used as animal feed. The poor would eat it, or after a long season of drought, you'll see sometimes the people celebrating that the barley fields have started to grow. It was a poor man's grain. And I want you to try to imagine the humiliation, apart from, let's put the barley to the side for a second, the humiliation of a husband seeking out his wife who is chased after other lovers, finding her, and she's for sale. She's somebody else's property. And he says, that's my wife. The Lord's commanded me to come and take her back unto myself. And the guy says, not for free. There's a price for this one. And Hosea, in his humiliation, I mean, some of you guys know infidelity. Some of you guys have been through infidelity. Some of you guys have seen stories of infidelity play out in your life, in the lives of loved ones, and you know the shame, and you know the humiliation of just, of, of, of all that you've got to walk through and navigate for redemption once that sin has beset a relationship. Some of you guys are intimately familiar with that. Some of you guys can only imagine but there's an intrinsic humiliation in the process of restoring something that is broken by infidelity. But then on top of that humiliation, there's the humiliation of not having the 30 shekels of silver to pay. There's a price on Gomer's life for her to be redeemed. And Hosea makes partial payment in silver and the rest in an inferior grain, in barley. What did he have to make the payment? The barley. 330 liters of it. It would have been humiliating. It'd be like digging into your pockets and pulling out buttons and, and pop tabs and being like, is this enough? Everything I have, it's your. I mean, this is everything I have. I've got the 15 shekels and here's everything else I have, but I'm giving, this is, I just, I want her back. And in this way, we see in a theater, in, in the price that Hosea has to pay, the costliness upon himself that he's got to dig into his pockets and offer all the silver he's got and then a bunch of inferior grain on top of it to come up with the price for his own wife. We see the cost of redemption to redeem what was rightfully his, and yet it pales in comparison to the cost, the humiliation of the cost that the Lord God paid to redeem you his bride unto himself. This is where we read that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him. He died on a cross naked and ashamed for you, church. He spilled his blood for you, church. He wore a crown of thorns. He was robed in a, in a, in a robe of purple, and he was beaten and struck. They blindfolded him. They punched him in the face. They said, prophesy who hit you while he was bleeding out and suffocating for breath. They mocked and jeered at him, and they said, he saved others. Why can't he save himself? The great cost paid to redeem you was a humiliating cost. Your Lord God hung for you, a grand display of love and humiliation. He despised the shame for what? For the joy set before him. You were the joy set before him. His glorification in heaven on the other side of the cross as he reigned as the eternal husband to his new bride, the purified 
cleansed, purchased, redeemed church. He bled and he died for you. Because some of us, we read this and we say, how could the Lord God call Hosea to do such a thing, to have to take back this adulterous lover, to have to pay everything he's got to get her back? How could he do that? And there's something in you that feels like indignant towards the very thought of it, and your heart breaks for Hosea. I tell you, let your heart break for the Lord. Let your heart break over your sin, which made it necessary for your Lord God to come and pay a redemption price so humiliating that to buy back what was already rightfully his. Because you were made through, for, and by Jesus Christ, and you, like me, chased after other lovers, idolaters, to the core. And because our righteous God declares that, we, that he is worthy of perfection, that his people made in his own image must dwell in perfection. There was nothing that we could do to make ourselves right or worthy to be brought back into communion and fellowship and, and have a seat at the table with our God. If, if he was going to make that so, he was going to have to change some things. He was going to have to do it by the power of his own hand at the price of his own redemption. And so he comes and he lays himself down for us, such a greater price than this great price which Hosea paid for his own bride. But he does it. And I'm trying to imagine in my mind as I read this, like, how did he find her? Maybe he knew. Maybe he knew just where to go. Maybe he just went through, like, the back alleys and the streets, like, asking you know, like she was, in a plural way, and it says that she threw herself at lovers, multiple lovers, that she functioned like a prostitute. Maybe her name was known in the streets, and he goes calling out the name of his wife. Somebody tell me where to find her. When he finds her, he finds her in the muck and the mire. He finds her so destitute that she doesn't even have autonomy anymore, and for him to bring her home, he needs to purchase her. And this is how the Lord found you. You were not moving toward him. You were not sprinting toward heaven. You were not seeking him out. He descended from heaven into the brokenness of this earth, into the fallen corruption that is the sin-soaked, subjected to futility world. And he walked among us and he sought and saved the lost. Not while you were looking for him. No, Hosea went out and he found her. He, he, his command was, the Lord's command to Hosea was, you go, you go again, and you love that woman just as I love the children of Israel. And so then he does, he brings her back into his home and he says to her, verse three, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man so will I also be to you. And so he basically redoes his wedding vows. He says, no, you shall be my wife and I shall be your husband. You must no longer run after these false idols, but know this, so also will I be to you. See, the, some of us, we imagine a God who redeems us begrudgingly who says, here's what I require of you now, but don't you expect anything from me after what you've done. 
But Hosea doesn't just buy her back. Hosea doesn't just empty himself of everything in order to redeem her. But he then looks her in the eyes and he says, I will remain faithful to you. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. Verse 4, we read judgment. We read what's coming for the nation of Israel. It says, For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. And so I want to kind of go through each of these one by one. When, when Hosea says in regards to, again, we're just contrasting his life against the prophecies that he's speaking. Now he's speaking about the nation of Israel. He says that um, the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or a prince. This means that they are not going to have a monarchy, that they are not going to have any type of self-governance, that they are going to belong to another nation. And this is going to be fulfilled when they're conquered by the Assyrians in just a little bit after this prophecy. So in these seasons where Israel are cast into exile, whether Babylonian exile or Assyrian exile, what we see is that the first thing that the Lord takes from them is their self-governance. Their self-governance. You will no longer have a king or a prince. That I will remove from you any sense that you get, have a say here in your security, that you have a say here in your belonging, in your status as a nation even. He takes away their autonomy or their, their semblance of autonomy. They don't have autonomy. He takes away their illusion of autonomy. And this was one of the earliest, er, earliest idols of the nation of Israel. They just call out to the God, just give us a king. We don't want you to directly govern us, God. We want, we want a king like the other nations. And so the first thing he takes away, remember contrasting with chapter 2, where, where each of these things should be thought of like the oil and the wine and the wool and the flax. These are gifts from God that when they take you away from him, he removes. And so here in his judgment, he says, you're going to dwell without a king, without a prince. Then he says, you're also going to dwell without sacrifice or pillar. Pillar you should take to mean like the temple or the places of worship, the altars that they would make the sacrifices on. He says, I'm taking away the religious institutes that I gave to you for, your, for the atonement for your sin um, and, and, and for your communion with me. All of that, I'm taking it away. Not that you were using it anyway. You, they'd kicked out the priesthood. They were making offerings to false gods and false idols. But he said, in the, for these many days that you are exiled, that you have no king and that you have no prince, you will likewise be without the means that I provided for you to be made right with me. And that would have been devastating to hear. And we see that it was devastating to hear all throughout the Old Testament, these stories of every time that the temple would crumble, every time the borders would fall, every time the walls of Jerusalem would be torn down, somebody's heart would break. There'd be one man whose eyes were on the Lord, and he would see what this meant, and he would cry out, and then the Lord would rebuild and restore, rebuild and restore, ultimately culminating in Jesus making the church the temple that would never fall. We'll come back to that. He says, without ephod. The ephod was a garment. It's a priestly garment, ceremonial. It was beautiful. It was like... Um, 
You you would wear it over your chest and back. It would hang over your shoulders. It was made with purple and scarlet and gold threads. And the the priests would wear it, and there were these straps that would hang off of them. And on each strap on the shoulders would be these two stones. They were called the Urim and the Thummim. And in the ancient days, God would allow the, the priests with these two stones to inquire of him and to ask him questions, and he would commune and communicate with the priesthood through these stones. They would ask him questions about what, where they should go, ask, for him, ask him for guidance, and then when the priest was wearing these, he would use these stones to communicate with them. It's a really interesting period in their history, but God says, I'm going to take that away too. And symbolic in taking away the ephod is I'm not only taking away the priests themselves, but I'm taking away the communion that you have with me and the intercession that you have through them. That, that divine guidance and that divine communication that he provided through the ephod is taken away from them. So he says, you will not be a nation. You will not be autonomous. You will not have the religious practices that I, that I have given to you. You will not have the priestly intercession or the priestly communion with me. And this all builds up to this promise, the promise that is repeated from chapter 2. And you will have no household gods. Amen. I take away all this stuff, but guess what I'm taking away too? Your household gods. And for this period where there's no household gods, like in chapter 2 where God says, I will remove the name of the Baals from their mouths. This is what he's doing. By, by declaring his judgment over them, he is removing from them their household gods. He is tearing down their idols by turning them over to them. He's saying, Go taste and see. What fault have you found in me that you have gone and hewn for yourself broken cisterns with stagnant water and drank from them? You want to turn from the fountain of living water? Go and drink and drink deeply. And when you taste the bitterness of your sin and of your idolatry, you will return to me. And that's the promise of chapter verse 5, that afterward, after this, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Amen? And this is where I want to circle back on what I was saying in my introduction about true Israel. If you were an Israelite in these days, you understood this prophecy to be about you, And the way that you are thinking at this time is that God is dealing strictly with an ethnic people group, that he's chosen the Hebrews as his people because that's what he'd said. He'd made some covenants with a select people. He'd taken them up out of the land of Egypt. He'd given them the land flowing with milk and honey in the land of Canaan, and he had declared all kinds of promises to them. And so you're thinking all of this is about us, ethnic Israel. But if this is all about ethnic Israel, then I don't know why I'm talking about it because you guys aren't ethnic Israel. But what you are is true Israel. And what the progressive revelation of the scriptures teach us is that the Lord was not concerned with ethnicity or race or region. He wasn't concerned with national borders. He was concerned with the circumcision of the heart, 
with true Israel. And we see this from the very beginning as he reveals this progressively, where even in the ancient days when a foreigner or a sojourner would, would come into the land of Egypt, the Lord would allow them to be grafted into his people, just become circumcised and declare your allegiance to the one true God, and you're in. And so we see this God who has always been a God of the nations, and yet he used the seed of Israel to bloom this, this, this amazing portrait of salvation across all the nations from every tribe, tongue, and nation, where he's going to bring every knee to bow. And we see that come into view in this passage in a particular way because in chapter 2 when he says that it is going to be said on that day when there is the return, when there's that true repentance, that to the people who were not my people, that I will say you are my people, guys, that's you. That's, That's you. That's the Gentile. You see, it was said for seasons to Israel that you are not my people, but it was always true of the Gentiles that we were not his people. And when the Lord opened up the door of mercy to his rejected people Israel and their judgment, he also opened it to the Gentile to let the rejected cast-off one be brought in. See, this is you. It says, The children of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Now, when it says that they are going to return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, it's important that we recognize that this prophecy is taking place a whole long time after David's long dead and gone. So who are we talking about when it says that they're going to return and seek David, their king? Well, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, listen to this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, this promise and prophecy finding partial fulfillment in King Solomon and then total fulfillment in Christ Jesus regarding the eternal throne and the eternal kingdom. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we read, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and prince of peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Isaiah gave that prophecy in the same generation that Hosea was giving his. We're talking about the reign of Jesus on the throne of David. In Luke chapter 1, verse 32, we read of Jesus that he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. We're talking about Jesus reigning over the throne of his father David. When we say that Jesus came from the lineage of David, we mean it literally. This is what Paul said in Romans 1. It's me, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. And if this is not enough, then just listen to Jesus himself in Revelation chapter 22 when he says, I am 
Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Here, all the way back in 8th century BC, the return to God, the return, the seeking after their king David, their ta- the, the long dead King David, we're talking about the one who would reign eternally, the promised one who is going to reign forever and ever and ever on the throne of David, the one Lord God, Jesus Christ. So, this is how you see yourself in the story. When you see God going out and redeeming for himself a people who already belonged to him, but that who he had turned over to their sin and said, you will not be my people. And then he says, you are my people. He's talking about you too, the remnant of Israel and the remnant from among the Gentiles, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We will return to the Lord and David, our King, Jesus. We will come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. I want to land this plane with a reading from Romans. If I can find it. Chapter 9, verse 25. Paul is quoting from Hosea here. And he says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay." If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, he would, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah, is what Paul says of the Jews. You are the offspring. You are the offshoot. You are the ones who were grafted in to the one true vine. You are the people of promise, the ones of whom God said, those who were not my people, it will be said, you are my people, and you will be called beloved. And so that's how you see yourself in Hosea. You are the wretched, unloved, unlovable, the cast off, the forsaken one, the one who was drenched in your sin, who didn't know your right hand from your left. You're the one who were dizzied by your idolatry. You're the one who had the audacity to even ignore the testimony of your own hand, which cried out to you that you were fearfully and wonderfully made, and to say in your folly, there is no God, or to, or to worship something that you fashioned in your own mind or with your own hands. You were the fool, the cast off one, that God came in human flesh and walked among us to ransom you unto himself to purchase what was already rightly his. It was by his work that you are saved. It is his gift. And church, if, if I have any charge for you this morning, it is this, 
that if we were all dead in our, in, our sin, in our sin and our trespasses in which we once walked, if we were all slaves to the prince of the power of the air, if we were all, if we had, if we were all called unrighteous in the face of God, that means none of you can boast. It means all of us bear the same gospel testimony of grace, that it was by the work of Christ alone that we were made children and sons and heirs of the promise according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so who would you withhold it from? If he can reach into those types of depths, the depths that Gomer was in for you, who can't he reach? To whom should the gospel be withheld? He gathered you and he's not done gathering. And so we go with the heart of Hosea, with this message of hope as the bride of Christ to invite dead and dying people to come and repent and to call on the one who sits on the throne of David for their eternal life. It's the gospel mission that he took for you. It's the one that's on display in the whole of scripture and it's the, one, it's the reason why you're still here. He didn't snap his fingers and bring you home at the moment of your salvation because he's chosen in his sovereignty to use you in the way that he used Hosea to go and gather his sheep to proclaim the name of Christ that the sheep would hear it and turn from their sin and join you at the dinner table in heaven. So go gather your lost brothers and sisters is the charge there. As you consider and you root out your own, we're coming to a close here. I don't know if the band wants a heads up, but if you are considering the place where you ought to repent right now, the place where you still are warring against your idols, do that. But then just remember that for you, the, God, the Lord God has already removed the mouth of the bales from your lips. That was the work that he did by his spirit. So I want us to be a church that gets our eyes eventually off of ourselves and starts to see the brokenness of our neighbor, starts to see the brokenness of our city, and goes and carries the message of hope that we've been recipients of and learns how to talk about this stuff with them. So I'll end with an illustration. I've shared this in my gospel community once or twice. I've got a dear friend. I think I've told you guys this before. And um, they, they would lead with this story. They were part of a church where uh, he had become a Christian right after they got married. And he was like the lead singer and guitarist of a local rock band, and she really thought he was going to make it places. This is back in the early 90s. And uh, so she married him, like, because she loved the fast life that they were living and the rock and roll life and all of that. And then, like, six months into their marriage, he meets Jesus, and Jesus changes everything. And so, like, he, like, forsakes the fast living that he was doing, and he becomes, like, a worship leader and, like, starts trying to lead her and eventually their children into the presence of Christ. But she's not a Christian, and he is. And so she builds this ongoing resentment that she had married a man that she no longer knew because he had died and the new self had come. And she hated that man, the new man. And so she played the church wife for a little while and then decided that she was going to prove that this whole thing was a fraud. And so she set out in her mind to prove it by pursuing as many lovers within the church as she could. And she had a high success rate and that church doesn't exist anymore. And many of these people were his closest friends. Some of them were on staff at the church. Some of them were pastors. 
And now this church, which no longer exists, is rubble, as the people scattered through all the controversy and the rampant sin. And this husband, this friend of mine, looks at his wife, and he thinks of Hosea. And he says, if I need to endure all of that in order for you to believe that this gospel in me is true, as I offer you forgiveness, then so be it. And he says, I forgive you, repent and turn to the Lord. And she falls on her face and I'll be worshiping with her forever. No, praise be to God. I share that story to say that the reason why I know those details is because when I met them, they shook my hand. They said, hi, I'm so-and-so. Let me tell you a story. And they just, and that's like how they introduced themselves because they can't tell the story of, of Christ's goodness in their life without telling the truth about the lengths and the depths to which he had to go to ransom and rescue them. And this is my charge to you that nobody can understand the gospel message that you are preaching if you leave out the part where you were dead and the trespasses in which you were once walked and Christ alone bore your sin and your shame upon his own shoulders and made you a new creation. Jesus did not add himself to your life. Jesus slayed your life of sin and then gave you a whole new one. And that's the gospel testimony of your life. And we need to learn to talk about it in the way that, Hosea, that the story of Hosea is played out. No details are spared here. When you say, Jesus saved me, I want to know from what? From what? And if we can't talk about it, then we're likely still hiding. And if we're still hiding, then we're probably not really believing the gospel for ourselves just yet. And so go before him and learn that the story of your wretchedness is part and parcel of the story of his kindness and his glory and his mercy in your life. And then go and share that gospel testimony with others that you can help them turn to him that he might knock their chains of sin off as well. Let's pray for that courage now. And let's pray for our neighbors as well.